City. It's your man, Big Pat, the voice of your Charlotte Hornets. And you're listening to the All Hornets Podcast Network, presented by Sports Illustrated. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to another episode of The Stinger. I'm your host, James Plowright. And joining me for this week's episode, Seth Rosenthal, a video editor and narrator for Secret Base on YouTube. Um, Seth, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. And we were actually just chatting before we came live on the show. Me and Seth did a podcast, we think, about 10 years ago, about the Knicks. What, who will have been on that Knicks team 10 years ago? Gosh, uh, I don't even... Who, I mean, who we were... might have been talking about, like, Lynn Sanity. I, mm. I, just, I, I talked to you when you were a kid, is my recollection of this. Tony I mean, Douglas. Kind of both were. Tony fact, Douglas was definitely around. I, I remember, because it was in the, the documentary, which we're going to talk about in a minute, there was a still when they played the Knicks, and the still was... I, I knew, I was like, who's that Knicks player? I recognize them. And then I pulled it from the back of my brain. It was Tony Douglas. And I have to say, I even impressed myself. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with that. But yeah, I was probably, yeah, like between the ages of ooh, 18 to 21 when we last spoke. But the, the reason Seth is joining us today is to talk about the new documentary on the secret-based YouTube channel, which is SB Nation's YouTube channel. Um, and the documentary all about the 2012 charlotte bobcats um and I, i'm trying to remember that the name is a little it's not catchy it's the 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 pants that you pay to wear what what the shorts that you pay to play in the, you do it it's so it's a it's a michael jordan quote i i very well might get it wrong right now i'm not gonna look it up but i believe yeah. it's the pe- the people you're paying to oh shit i know that's <laughs> what i found you're paying to be in shorts but yes, that's I don't know. yes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't easily <laughs> stick in your head, does it? Like, but um, I didn't. I didn't come across the quote. But if you watch the documentary, it becomes very, very clear why that quote was used. And for those who haven't come across the documentary yet, I could not recommend enough. As someone who lived through that era of Bobcats basketball, the historic seven and fifty nine season, worst winning percentage in NBA history, it catalogs everything. From the lockout before, every single player on the roster has like a section. The ownership, the coaching, the spin-offs. Um, I mean, it's two hours, I think, two hours and 17 minutes. But if you want to kind of learn more about the Bobcats history, I could not recommend it more. And it, it took me back to some some places I'd not thought about in a very, very long time. Um, and also brought back some PTSD alongside with it. Uh, but you were one of the writers and one of the narrators on the podcast series. So we're going to talk about a little bit about how the project came about today, and then also uh, just some of the things that kind of caught my caught my eye when I was watching it. So I guess firstly, how have SB Nation's YouTube channel stumbled across doing a, a two-hour, two-and-a-quarter-hour documentary on the Charlotte Bobcats? Yeah. So a combination of factors. Um, 
John Boyce and Alex Rubenstein have this long running series called Dorktown, um, which for people who have and have not seen the Bobcats thing, like it is very heavy on charts and data. Um, and it is very, very dry and looks very, I think, unique compared to other documentary type features. It has no interviews, um, no access whatsoever, no original reporting for the most part. Um, but what John and Alex are exceptionally good at doing is finding sports stories, sports history that sort of jumps off the page with the right storyteller, if that makes sense. So that, you know, they've done, and often it takes them hours to tell that story. So they've done a, a piece on the entire history of the Seattle Mariners. They did a beautiful piece about Dave Steeb, the famous and sort of often um, uh, snuffed out uh, Blue Jays pitcher of uh, the 80s. Um, and John and Alex have built a really rabid fan base of people who don't necessarily even like sports, let alone the team that they're talking about, but can buy in to a particular story, even over a matter of hours, because John and Alex are really gifted at peeling away layers of, you know, not jargon and facts and stats to show you a really human story in something, um, really to an extent that no one else has, I think, at that, you know, where they're not even going to talk to people involved, but they can tell you why this is important. Um, yeah. I have to say, it, what you described there, so I had no prior knowledge of of, of John and the Dorktown series before mm -hmm. going into this, right? So I was very much just kind of parachuting in. It was truly unique. Like, I've never watched anything like it. Um, and I was just fascinated by the entire concept. Um, so I, honestly, I, I'm just urging people to go watch this. If you go on Secret Base on YouTube or type in the people you're paying to be in shorts. I've got it up in the screen now, which I probably should have done the first time. It's a lot easier reading it than remembering it. Um, please make time to go use it. But but say it's two hours, uh, two, yeah. two hours, uh, 27 minutes. Make sure you got some time. Break it up if you need to. Uh, but make sure you stay for the whole thing. And I, and I will add to this, like, it's sort of a hard sell if you haven't seen it. And, and so that's why I would like, mm. I, I mean, you know, for Hornets fans, maybe there's, you know, or people who do or don't remember the 2011, 2012 Bobcats, it might be more appealing. But I do think what John and Alex bring to the table is that they can get you to buy in on a team you've never even heard of or care yeah. about because they're pretty good at taking that raw data and showing you why it's important and interesting and compelling using very limited and unique tools. But anyway, I, I don't usually, you know, I also produce videos for Secret Base. Um, but I just work on a different set of series, different lengths, different cadences, different types of topics. I make beef history. I make rewinder. Um, you know, I try to do something similar, but I use a different palette. Um, but John and Alex rarely cover basketball in Dorktown um, for whatever reason. Um, and I'm very much a basketball forward, pro basketball forward person. And I, at one point, I, I, I think earlier this year, I hit up John and I was like, listen, I, I, I had stumbled across the, just the, the, the BREF, the basketball reference page for that, that team. And I was like, John, I'm, and, and Alex, I'm like, I'm sitting here looking at this page and like, 
this is such a weird and interesting group of guys. You know, you have Kemba at the very beginning of his career. You have other players at the ends of their careers. You have Boris Diaw in the middle of one of my favorite careers ever. It's the losingest season ever. It's in, you know, right after the lockout and it's a team owned by the best NBA player ever. Like it is such a bizarre story. And I was like, John, like if ever I had the chance to, you know, if we could collaborate, if we could convince our bosses to let us put other stuff aside and spend a lot of time with this, I really think it's a compelling story. And that, you know, that was months and months and months ago, but we were given the opportunity to work on this together. And I think I benefited a lot from being part of this statistical universe with the brain power and data mining power that I'm not used to working with. And I think my actual memory of those Bobcats and liking a lot of those players and watching some of those games and being, you know, having some sort of institutional working knowledge of stuff, I think I brought something to the table too. And it was a, you know, I, I think people hopefully come away from it appreciating that team and the people involved and what losing looks like and feels like and why it might happen. And also what that's all like for Michael Jordan to be responsible for. Mm. Um, you know, I, I hope it um, reaches, I hope it, I hope it satisfies people who do remember that team and who care about the Charlotte NBA franchise. But I also hope that like John and Alex usually do, it is compelling to people who've never even heard of it. Yeah. And, and no doubt, I definitely think it achieves that. What I wanted, how did you find yourself on the Charlotte Bobcats basketball reference page for the 2012 season? Do you remember how you got there? Oh man, I really don't. I could probably go, you know, retrace my steps and see what I was working on at the time. But that's, yeah. that's my job, you know, is I, I am digging through basketball reference and old newspapers all the time. And I don't remember what specific project brought me there um, mm. off the top of my head, but that's, that's the kind of stuff I find yeah. myself doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I think what it might have been, I think the most disappointing thing about that story is something that isn't the case. Uh, I think it, I was, you know what? I think I have it. I think I was looking at Wikipedia or some other source might've even been basketball reference and noticed that Charles Oakley was an assistant coach for that team, which is such a fun thing to imagine, but he wasn't. And that's, that's, that was the only thing that I was like, man, that would have made this story even just 1% better if Charles Oakley, you know, mm -hmm. MJ's best friend, a great player, a guy who did not take bullshit from anyone was the assistant coach on one of the worst, but he, he, I think had been a Bobcats assistant. Yeah. Coach, he was, was for it. Yeah. He was yeah, for it. It wasn't that season. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of the project of like the researching, I mean, some of the references and some of the articles found and the excerpts that are, are shown in the, in the documentary, I'm there sitting there going, how have these guys found these? I mean, you had a shout out Ben Swanson, who's been on this podcast before from a uh, old at the hive. Um, you even had like a, a Sagana Diop article uh, quote from him. Like, what what was the process like? Do you just troll through the back history records of the Charlotte Observer and and whatever it was, Rufus on Fire slash at the Hive? Is is that yeah. what your process was? I mean, again, so part of it is like I have a pretty good memory for the Bobcats, and so there was some stuff I could mention off the top of my head. Like, oh my, I remember. Actually, I don't think this is in there because it happened later. But 
Michael Kidd Gilchrist lost to Michael Jordan playing one-on-one and, you know, Boris Diaw wrote a segue to practice and I, I have some of that stuff. So that's a good starting point, but yeah, uh, we, you know, we have a subscription to newspapers.com and with the time and resources and John just brute force, we collectively read basically every article that was written about that team that season. Wow. And, and, and I will get, you know, plenty of equally or more interesting teams have gone relatively undocumented, but the Charlotte observer continues to, but at the time had with Rick Bunnell covering the team full time had some of the, had just a beat that it did not deserve that, that team. It was really well covered. There was a lot of color people really Rick Bunnell in particular spent a lot of time studying that team and getting to know the players. And you can see the richness of his coverage and his, his relationships with the players throughout. But yeah, we, we read, and actually John sort of cataloged in a spreadsheet, every single article, um, you know, and we're talking about a short season. So it's not like this is years and years and years of data, but like, yeah, we really, we got to know everyone there uh, through Rick Bunnell more than anyone else. Um, and so, yeah, yeah we, we had a lot to pull from. And, uh, for, you know, for someone who follows, who's been following the, the Bobcats and the Hornets for a long time now, it's so rare that you see any form of long-term, sorry, uh, long-form content, which really gets into, like, the detail. You know, normally all the all the Charlotte Hornets ever get is a, a spot on a power ranking, and if you're lucky, someone on a, on a rookie of the year ladder. Mm-hmm. And that's about the extent of the coverage that people are used to from, like, a national perspective. And to see, you know, a, something of such high quality and detail digging into the history, and when there's so many other stories in basketball but you're, you're right. The infamy is the, is the, you know, the, the glorious side of it. And it's a story that often goes untold, right? Everyone's heard about, uh, you know, the, the Warriors team that won a record number of games. And it's been written about so many times. No one has talked about that Bobcats team outside of the Charlotte kind of Bobcat fan ecosystem uh, probably since, since that season. So it's, it's so interesting and so like nice to be able to have something that is just so different to what we normally see. I, I appreciate that. And I I think if it were simply that, you know, someone has to be the worst team ever. And I think that a perfectly interesting YouTube video or editorial piece of some sort could be, you know, how did they end up being the worst team ever? Um, and if that were, if it were just, well, they really sucked or they were rebuilding or tanking or, you know, a bunch of guys didn't get along or they were hurt, that would be fine on its own. But I, I think for several reasons, one of them being Michael Jordan, another being a handful of the guys on the team who really, I think, are you know, compelling, sometimes very fun players and sort of their intersecting stories. And then the third one being, I guess this isn't, you know, I wouldn't want to spoil this for um, someone who is coming in cold, but this is a Hornets podcast. So the third one being that it ended with them coming in second in a one-man draft. Well, one, not a one-man draft, but what at the time was perceived as a one-man draft and, you know, getting, getting Michael Kidd Gilchrist when they could have had Anthony Davis, that, that sort of punchline on the entire thing. There's a lot more human narrative drama to it than you would get from just looking at a, you know, reverse order list of NBA winning and losing yeah. records. 
And and I want to move on to now some of the things that have like popped out to me during the documentary that I was furiously scribbling notes uh, about. <laughs> and we're probably not going to get to all of them. But um, one of the things that you said there is, you know, the, Jordan went through that traumatic season, right? And you fast forward to the future of the of the Bobcats and Hornets, and they've never really tanked to the same extent as, as they did then, you know, they've never traded for bad contracts uh, to taking on, taking on bad salaries to get draft picks. You know, yes, there was after Kemba left, there was kind of a rebuilding year and they, but they actually played okay and moved up and ended up getting Lamelo in the draft when they got lucky. But like part of me wonders when I was watching that, you forget how traumatic this was, how much this tarnishes Jordan, how much Jordan hated it. I think there was a, there was a quote, wasn't there from Jordan, which, uh, which was about, uh, I'm trying to find it here. Um, he ba- he basically said, it took me a while to get on board, but I finally accepted it. Like, this is what we had to do to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a hard sell. That was what he said. It was a hard mm-hmm. sell. And I finally kind of got on board with it. I have to think that plays into his style of ownership now. And I don't know if he's willing to go through that pain again to then potentially go to the draft where the, the odds have been flattened even more since mm-hmm. it was then. Whereas now you could go through that pain and end up with a, the third or the fourth pick, or you could tank this year away and not end up with Wambanyama, you know, Arsenal Thompson or uh, Scoot Henderson. I, th- I think the scars of that season are still very prevalent today in the decision-making. Yeah. I, I, you know, Jordan is, unique in that he not only was a player before he became an owner but is you know one of the most notoriously competitive people in the history of the human race like so this is not a consultant or hedge fund manager or you know banking billionaire who for whom this is just one other possession you know that they pay attention to sometimes he cares. He gets it. He knows what makes a good NBA player. He knows what makes a bad one. So it is particularly compelling. And I think it probably hurts him more than the average owner for a team to really, truly suck, especially because, you know, in my estimation, and this is the other component here is that he was a player. He was on the other side of the negotiating table coming out of a lockout as they were in 2011, entering 2012, like, the, the Bobcats weren't tanking, but, uh, you know, as I say in the video, they weren't spending money. He was not willing to, you know, he was a, a, I think, somewhat surprising and dispiriting hardliner during the 2011 lockout, obviously on the side of the owners. And then he, he reaped what he sowed in that he was not going to, you know, extend salary to people. He was not working to improve what had been a kind of, you know, a mediocre team, not a terrible one before that. Um, you know, they, they were neither rebuilding nor building. They were just trying to sort of stagnate and things worked out in a way where they ended up being terrible. But yeah, it is, you know, I don't think anyone has experienced a losing season quite like the guy owning the team being someone who actually played that sport and knows exactly what it feels like to win more than anyone else has ever. NBA fans, the NBA action is just getting started, and so the incredible offers at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the NBA. 
New customers can make any $5 NBA pregame Moneyline bet, and they get $200 in free bets if your team wins. So check this out. Right now, everyone can up to 100% boost with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place the same-game parlay, and combine multiple bets of which team will win, rebounds, player props as well. So, a couple of tips. I've been doing well on the Hornets this year. Bet the Hornets unders, especially when they're missing quite a few players at the minute. Total points unders, I think, is hit in four games in a row. Cut up a couple of player props to look out for. PJ Washington, when he's got good matchups where he's not going to get into foul trouble, try and go for the over. So he's got uh, Caleb Martin coming up for the Miami Heat, Kyle Kuzma. I like those matchups for him. It's not like where he's having to match up with Sabonis. So go over for PJ Washington. Also, for those players coming back, Rosier, uh, maybe Dennis Smith Jr., Cody Martin. Take the unders, because they're going to be limited in minutes. They're going to be a little bit slow, so take the unders there. And then, with payouts bigger than ever, DraftKings Sportsbook is where I go to bet on the NBA. So, make sure to download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now using the promo code TBPN. Make any $5 bet this week and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with promo code TBPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. Please see the show notes for details. Moving on to some of the other bits that caught my mind, you know, it it made it very clear that the the Hornets leading up to that 2012 season were always the the one draft pick away from drafting the star player, right? You know, they got Okafor instead of Dwight. They got mm-hmm. Raymond Felton instead of Chris Paul. Um, uh, they missed out on the Marcus Aldridge by one pick. I can't remember who they picked in that particular draft. Was that um, the Morrison draft? Was that the Morrison draft? 2003? Uh, no. Well, Aldridge was in 03. It would have been. No, sorry. Yeah. That's not anyway, 2003. Yeah. 05, I, I think. Yeah. Um, part of me wondered, I was watching that, even if they drafted Dwight, CP3, Aldridge, do they become those players who they are in history? Do they become those all-stars in Charlotte? And it comes down to that question of nature-nurture. Um, it was just something that crossed my mind. Like, if if history had played out differently in terms of, like, where they'd been selected, what do you, what do you think? Do you, do you think those guys were always destined for greatness? I, I believe very much in developmental, you know, milieu mattering and nature and nurture being part of whether a player turns into a superstar or not. I think you just named three players who are so naturally talented and were so pedigreed coming into the NBA and were such, you know, just intelligent, dynamic players at in their primes. And still for Chris Paul, that no, that that would have made a huge difference. Chris Paul is Chris Paul. I mean, we know now that Chris Paul is really one of a kind. And it's not like Chris Paul ended up on a terrific team anyway. He was in New Orleans and you know, he made that team what it was for a while and built his career from there and turned the players around him better. But yeah, no, if I, I, I think of the Charlotte Bob, Charlotte Bobcats had Chris Paul, he would still be Chris Paul. We would remember a lot of the other players who were Charlotte Bobcats better than we do now. Mm. The Charlotte Bobcats might still well exist under that same name if Chris Paul became a Bobcat. I really believe that. And they um, could have they could have had Chris Paul from what the report that you said. I don't know what uh, news outlet it was from. 
uh, I think it might have been for the Observer, there was an offer that they could have traded 5 and 13, which would have been Raymond Felton and Sean May, for the third pick, but they chose not to do it. That was one of the reports. And like I, that's something that I it had gone from my memory. I don't know if I hadn't seen that report before, but I saw that and I thought, like, that is just like trading up in the NBA to get the star player. That would have been such a no-brainer. But um, I mean, it's it's hard to say that now, right? Because we've got hindsight. But um, I didn't even know that was an option. And absolutely, you know, I learned something. As you know, I'm, I'm probably about as you know as hardcore in terms of committed to watching everything over the last decade. And not even I could remember that. So that was that was something interesting for me to learn. And you know, some other nuggets. Just like if you want to know how in depth they like this documentary goes it even has a section of rich show's big time bites his food reviewing blog which like how does anyone outside of charlotte know that okay so i want to briefly take credit for that one because that's what i'm saying is like john and alex can do the most research and they're incredible but i remembered that rich show had a food blog (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was that was impressive i'm like how how are these people remembering this um you had a full like 10 minute segment on just Sagana Jop's airballed free throw, yeah. um, which was like incredible. And I'm like, just the, the level of detail on this just absolutely blew my mind. Um, I, I want to talk about two things to finish. Firstly, your love for Boris Diaw as a narrator, which you make very clear in your video, which will make you an enemy of many Charlotte fans. I get um, that. And, you know, I think the, 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 the quote of all things, I think was it, Paul Silas, when he got there, said to Boris Diaw, like, do you want to be an all-star? And he said, not really. Yeah. Um, which is just the most anti-NBA ego take like there is. And if someone said that now, I feel like the internet would have a full-blown meltdown. Um, but what what is it that Boris Diaw, you know, it wasn't just his time in Charlotte. You mentioned that he was one of your kind of favorite players. Why is it Boris Diaw sti- like, sticks out to you as someone who you revere? I, I want to say that I... I- to completely sympathize with any Charlotte fan who is mad at me for loving Boris Diaw. I think part of why I love Boris Diaw is that he was never on, I'm a, I'm a huge Knicks fan. He was never on the Knicks. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think any of us who works a normal job can sort of relate to someone who's only willing to give effort when they feel like they're in a place that deserves it. And there's just something very compelling and likable to me about a player who just openly when he was in Atlanta, when he was in Charlotte, just dogged it, just looked around at the, his teammates, at the coaching staff, at the, you know, the type of culture he was in and said, this isn't worth it. They don't yeah, deserve not for me. <laughs> they don't deserve me. Uh, and then, you know, the minute really like I, if you look at Boris Diaz splits in 2012, um, you know, obviously he went on to win a, a ring with the Spurs, but like in that 2012 season, he played, you know, 20, whatever it games was, uh, whatever number of games it was with the Spurs. And he immediately improved. He shot better. He he passed oh. better. He was much more efficient. Charlotte fans remember that. They yes, remember that. I'm sure you do. And you know, he got in better shape. He said the right things. And I, you know, I think part of it, Boris Dio, like I said, in the, in the, the video, has this sort of life outside of the NBA where he's a, you know, seems like a really erudite accomplished guy. Um, and so that's kind of compelling. And I'm just, I'm just always interested in these guys who, yeah, I just happen to be six, eight and really talented and gifted. 
And if someone gives me the right opportunity, I'll play great basketball, but otherwise yeah. I'm not going to. It's, it's, I think, very endearing. But I can completely get, as a fan of a bad team myself, why someone <laughs> watching someone not give their all for a bad team does not feel good. Yeah. Um, last last couple of things, and it's about it, one was a again a rumor that I had not heard that apparently during the the season there was a rumor that they were launching some new Jordans at the Hornets fan shop, and 500 fans turned up to the stadium, and they tried to give out Charlotte Bobcats tickets to get the fans to go away, and the fans said, "No, we don't want your tickets. We want the shoes." Uh, like i i had no idea that happened how did you did, is that another one of the things that you found no that i i can't take credit for that one john tracked that down himself um and yeah i mean listen that's just basic economics <laughs> a pair of jordans is worth a lot more than a pair yeah. of charlotte bobcats tickets in 2012 i don't know i don't know what to tell how does the rumor get out in 2012 like is twitter isn't a thing then like I, i'm Wait. just curious Twitter was enough of a thing that at least misinformation could spread in 2012, if I recall correctly. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. That's that's honestly worth digging into as its own separate story, as a number yeah. of things I think are in that documentary. But um, yeah, that's a very good microcosm of the whole situation. And then the the last thing was, and I'm and I'm really glad you made this point because I, I think this documentary is very fair and transparent on its like uh, analysis of Jordan as the owner on his shortcomings and his benefits. But one of the things you do talk about is his, his charitable arm and how he wasn't just giving money to charity um, to be seen, to be doing that. Right. And in the, there was a, the anecdote again, just to take that um, he had his own Michael Jordan foundation, which he shut down because he didn't feel that, it was getting money to the right people quick enough. And he just started making donations to existing foundations because, and, and anyone who's doing it just for the reason of, I want to look good. You keep your foundation running, right? Because you can talk about it. You can reference it. You go to your dinner, your gala once a year and mm. smile on stage. And I think we've all known the, some of the drawbacks of Jordan's ownership. Um, but you speak to people within the organization and I, I have done they all much prefer being part of the organization with Michael Jordan being the only than it was before. The change he's made in the community, the assurances he's given, uh, the the structure, the staff, um, the the role that the Hornets now play within the community is is just so much better and there's so much more embedded into that that city. Um, and you capture that uh, and you share that, which I think is an important point. So. I kind of wanted to to kind of finish really on a, on a positive. Um, and again, it was just another, another interesting story that I did not know about that charitable foundation, which had been shut down, but it just kind of added further to some of the, the kind of anecdotes that I've heard about the team. Yeah. You know, Jordan as is well-documented and as I think we touch upon in this piece is a deeply complicated man with a lot of darkness and cruelty in his past. Um, and that said, I think he also cares deeply about his team and I think he cares deeply about the city of Charlotte. And I think part of what makes that, that season interesting is that again, you know, he, he, he knows basketball and he was invested financially as well as just emotionally 
And I think that actually hurt him. And I think it actually, he was trying and he, he wanted those players to succeed and imagined that they might, um, and wanted it for the city and for the people he worked with. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, with, with a more recent perspective, um, because that's how it seemed to us is that like, there's, there's a lot of negative stuff that could be said about MJ and it would be earnest. And I'm not even talking about his, his ownership of the team or management thereof, but um, he does care and he, he does pay attention and he does the, know the people around him um, for better and worse. You know, we've seen how that goes with other teams for better and worse, but um, yeah, the, the, the charitable portion of his business dealings at the time is, is I think an interesting component of that. Yeah. Well, Seth, that, that's all we've really got time for on this episode. Uh, before we get out of here, is there is there anything you you kind of, any last points you want to make? Anything on the cutting room floor that didn't make it that you thought was interesting or anything else that you want to pitch uh, about your work that you've got coming up? Uh, nothing cutting room floor. And, I, you know, I think the pitch I will make is, it, you know, this is a Hornets podcast. If people are uh, getting into... Uh, secret, you know, this is the first secret based video you've ever seen. I would love for you to watch, you know, my work. We make Beef History Rewinder, a lot of series that are much shorter in form and a little less dense. But also, it's worth checking out stuff that John and Alex have made uh, with Dorktown. You know, pick a video at random if you have an hour to kill. Uh, doesn't have to be a team you like. It's, it's, I think it would be cool having watched something that is about something you remember and know and love to then transition to seeing a version of that that's for someone else's favorite team. I, I think you'll find it an interesting experience. They do incredible work and I was lucky to work with them. Yeah, very well said. And I, I've already sent on the uh, the West Virginia Championship altering implosion needs a deep rewind to uh, Skyler, who runs the All Hornets website, covers West Virginia um, and is a big West Virginia fan. So I've already sent that on to him to, to watch when I saw that there. And uh, yeah, I definitely echo Seth's comments there. So Seth, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, make sure you can go on YouTube, search for Secret Base and look at the people you're paying to be in shorts, Dorktown, and you'll be able to watch that documentary. And if, and if you do, please let me and Seth know that you've watched it and, and through this podcast. But uh, that'll be everything for the episode of The Stinger and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>